when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, shall ne- shall never s- you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may, be- may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and over, his ho- and over all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. This is the word of God. Let me just clear this off. <laughs> All right, there we go. Great. Am I on? Good. Good to have you here. My name's Gav. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here with us. If you're new or visiting, good to have you here. Thanks for coming along. Hope you can stay nice and warm in our nice warm building. Anyway, uh, we're walking through the book of Exodus and seeing really what God is like in this book. And uh, we, were look, we were looking at chapters 14 to 15 today. But uh, we're going to open the Word of God, and so God's going to speak to us. So let me talk to the author of the, this passage for us and ask that he would speak clearly and we would listen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your Word, that it is true, that it is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, in a room this big, uh, we, we don't know where each of, each of us are at, but you do. You've said you've numbered the very hairs on our head. You know where we're at with you, how we're feeling right now, what sort of weeks we've had, and the mindset that we're in. And you know what we need to hear today. And so, Lord, we want to ask that you'd be present here by the power of your Holy Spirit this afternoon, that we would be able to listen really clearly to put aside any distraction or any worry in our mind, and just really to be still before you, the Creator who loves us dearly. We ask that we would see your love your love for us personally, that any blockages that are in our way from, see, from, from seeing who you are, you would just take that away and that we would just meet with you. Lord, use me as your servant just to get out of the way and just help us to see you and, 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 and worship and rejoice in the fact of your love. So Lord, bless our gathering we ask today. Amen. And I, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to be still, to sit still. I always want to be doing something, achieving something. This was really tested for me about five years ago. I was at home and I started to, uh, I had a cold, wasn't much of a big deal, and it, uh, but it progressed a bit to almost like the flu sort of symptoms. My body started to ache and I found it hard to move around, really lethargic, and I felt like I had a sort of weakness in my body. They didn't know what was going on. In the middle of the night, I needed to um, go to the bathroom, and so I walked down, the, down my hallway 
to go to the bathroom, and I was sort of really, really slow, lethargic, walking down, and then I went to the bathroom, came back, and on the way back through the hallway, I collapsed. My legs just gave way. Problem was that I couldn't get back up, so I had no strength in my, in my lower limbs to, to actually hold my weight. And so I was stuck in my hallway, I called it to my wife to come and help, but there was no way she was getting her giant husband off the ground. She's quite little. And so I had to drag myself by my arms back to my bed. Uh, my wife then called an ambulance and uh, they came and they weren't really sure what was going on. And so uh, they took me to RPA hospital, checked me out. And by the time I went to the hospital, I was on this bed and I actually had no use of my legs. It was like I'd become a paraplegic. I saw a professor of neurology quite quickly. He diagnosed me with something straight away called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And it's an autoimmune disease that is, that is post-viral. Uh, that means that uh, my body has started attacking the flu in my, in my system, but then it kept on attacking the good cells and nerves and started to eat away at the nerves in my legs. And so I couldn't move. Uh, they rushed me up to a, to a ward as fast as possible, and uh, I wasn't really sure what was going on, and they wanted to start treating this straight away. And uh, uh, as is in the case of Guillain-Barre, it can get worse. And so it starts at your toes and can go up your body and shut down a lot of the major organs and especially your lungs, and so you can't breathe anymore. And so um, you can, people can potentially die from this, and it all happens within hours. So they need to act really fast. So I was rushed up to the ward, and where for the next five days, I was attached to an uh, intravenous immunoglobulin. I had two liters of it every day for five days, and it, was, it would take about six hours to get into my system. And it's basically a sterile solution of concentrated antibodies extracted from healthy people, and they pump them into your body <clears throat> so that the body will then attack the antibodies and not the good cells and nerves in your system. And so I was in there for five days, basically, in a paraplegic. Here's a photo of me, and then my son had his fifth birthday at the time, and this was me in the, in the wheelchair. <laughs> my kids are so little. Um, but that was, that was a few years ago now. And it was a full-on time. You can get rid of that photo. Um, it was a full- <laughs> I don't want to see myself in there. Um, it was a full-on time, not knowing, was this going to work? Was, this, was it, was it going uh, to get any better? Will Gillian Barre attack my lungs so I couldn't breathe and have to put on a respirator? Would I survive? And I even had this nurse uh, who wasn't on the ward that I was in, and uh, she walked past and stuck her head and said, oh, hi. And I'm like, oh, hi. And she said to me, I just wanted to see so- come past and see someone with Gillian Barre who was still alive. I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. Makes me feel great. Um, but one of the hardest parts was not being able to do anything. I had to sit there or lay there. My legs didn't work. I, could, I had no choice. And, uh, and I couldn't move while I was receiving this drip as well. And I couldn't fix myself and I had to be still. And I hated I could do nothing. I hated not being in control and not knowing what the outcome would be. I hated being still. Today we are looking at a passage where God is talking about delivering His people out of slavery. And what we are going to see is God calls His people to be still, to be silent and to watch and to watch him fight for them. Watch him deliver them from slavery. Watch him rescue. And this deliverance out of slavery, uh, we have this story in Exodus, is a paradigm for really how God rescues us from our slavery to sin and death through the true Passover lamb, Jesus. 
And what we're going to see today is that our deliverance from sin and death is all God's work. He's the one who delivers us. He's the one who rescues us. And he's the one who promises to fight for us. We just have to be still and be silent and see him at work. And this is such good news. This is such good news. that We can do nothing. It's by grace we are saved. It's by all God's work. And we can all hear this and go, great, amen, love that, love that. But practically, I think we all really find it hard to sit still and to believe we can do nothing or, or, or contribute nothing to God's work. We want to contribute. We want to make changes. We want to control the outcomes. We want to say, this is what I've done. This is what I've achieved. How often do we try and fight our own battles in our own strength, relying on our own understanding? And it's hard for us to let go and trust God when He says, I will fight for you. And we think, will He? And will He do it in my timing? And will He do it the way that I want Him to do it? Will He do as good a job that I could do? And when things look hard and our circumstances around us look like they're going to crash and fall, we step back behind the wheel and say, God, sit in the passenger seat, I got this one. I think I can do a better job as a ruler than you can. And we try, and I try, and often it fails, it doesn't work, then we feel defeated, and we feel down in ourselves like we're a failure. It can lead us to feeling stressed and worried and anxious. We forget that God is the one who, can, who will fight for us. And then we often blame Him when things fall apart. Today, in these chapters, we're going to see that God is the only one who can deliver us, and He just calls us to be still and to watch. And my hope is today, as we look at chapters 14 and 15, you'll see who God is, His love for you, and how much He says that He will fight for you. You need to rest in that. And my hope is that you rejoice in this God and His love for you. But each week, as we walk through chapters, I try and show you where I'm going for my thinking and for yours. Here's where we're going to go today as we track through these chapters. Delivered from slavery, delivered by grace, delivered to worship. From, by, for. From slavery, by grace, to worship. But we've been tracking through the book of Exodus from chapters 1, we're right through to the end. And it's always really helpful to know where we've come from, so we know where we're going to in this narrative story And we've seen that God's people, Israel, are His people, He chose them. And that He has called them to be His people. And they were in Egypt, in a land not their own. And they were growing numerous, as God had promised. And the uh, the Pharaoh, the king of that time, had enslaved this people because they were becoming too numerous. And he was worried they would rise up against him. And so out of fear, he enslaves them. And Pharaoh also wants to put a stop to that numerical growth. And so what he decides is, is that he'll get all the Hebrew, ba- Hebrew boys, baby boys, and kill them and slaughter them. Slaughtering innocent children out of a deep desire for power. And Pharaoh is one of the, the most evil characters we meet in the Bible. And so God hears and sees and he raises up a Hebrew boy named Moses who he saves miraculously from the slaughter. And he says, through Moses, I'm going to confront this Pharaoh. I'm going to work through you, Moses, to confront Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And, God, and Moses confronts the king of Egypt, the most powerful man on the planet at that time. But Pharaoh says, who is this Lord? I don't know him. I don't recognize him. And therefore, I will not obey him. I will not listen to him. And so God says, well, all right, then I will show you who I am. 
I will show you who I am, and I will free my people from slavery and bring divine justice on what you have done. And so God sends the ten plagues. We saw that two weeks ago. God sent the ten plagues to reveal who He is. And He says, I'm the Lord. And He defeats defeating Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. The tenth plague He sent last, we saw, was quite full on. The, the angel of death that came, killing the firstborn throughout Egypt. But God provided a way for, this, to, for His people to escape this judgment. And so He said, He provided a substitute, a lamb, a Passover lamb, saying, kill this lamb, a substitute, and get the blood and paint it on your doorframe, and I will pass over in judgment um, my people. And He does. This happened, then Pharaoh relented and said, your people can go. And this is where we're up to today, chapter 14. And we said that God has and will deliver His people from slavery. You know, God frees a million people, over a million people, these Israelites leaving, physically walking out of Egypt. And there's like women and children and men and, and animals all leaving slowly from the land of Egypt. They are free. And they are walking free and leaving behind them the horrendous past. We, uh, we read here that God is literally there leading them out. Have a look at this. This is chapter 13, 21 and 22. It says this. And the Lord went behind, before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And I love this. God has freed his people from Pharaoh, and then he literally leads them out. He shows them the way to go. Sentence 21, the Lord went before them in the pillar of cloud to lead them. 22, the cloud and pillar never departed. He never left them. His presence was there, caring for them, shepherding them, guiding them, protecting them, and showing them the way out of slavery. God didn't do a half-hearted job and rescue them and say, now, good luck, go that direction. You may or may not make it. He's there saying, here's the way to go, and I will care for you the whole way to deliver you out of slavery. And we see where God leads them. Chapter 14, 1 to 5 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, turn back and encamp in front of Pahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I... And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get the glory of a Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And what's happening here where God has led them? God is leading them to be cornered. So he's leading to a place to encamp by the sea on one side, and he says, then Pharaoh and his, and his armies will come and corner them in. Now, in ancient Near East time, the place of sea was a place of chaos, a place of, a, a place of things. You never entered the water. And so God's leading them to the edge of this water. And on the other side, the Egyptians will hem them in. And so they are trapped. But it is the Lord's trap that he is doing. He is setting it. And he says, as soon as Pharaoh sees this, I think Israel is lost, then he will come and change his mind and try and enslave the people of Israel all over again and recapture them. And this is what happened. Look at Genesis 5 tonight on the screen. Genesis 5, just as God says, Pharaoh regrets letting Israel go and he wants to enslave them again. So he rallies his whole army to chase down Israel. And this is probably one of the most strongest and powerful armies on the planet at that time. Chariots and horses chasing down people on a foot. Men, women, children. This would be a massacre if, if Egypt catch up with Israel. I will slaughter them. 
We read the Egyptians catch up to them very quickly, and Israel are cornered. Egyptian one side, Red Sea the other side. But remember, God said His plan was this was going to happen. And this is all to show that He will defeat Pharaoh. And it's like Egypt are actually walking into God's trap. And it's all along to show that God alone is the Lord. And God is there, His presence is there, leading them out. And God wants this cliffhanger moment almost. Have a look. Uh, so Israel is sort of cornered in there. They see, they see Egypt coming, Red Sea one side, and they're stuck. Look at how Israel responds then. Have a look at this. This is Genesis 10 to 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lift up their eyes, and behold, the, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried to the Lord, saying, Then they said to Moses, it's because the, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The Israelites look up and they see this huge army coming towards them and they are filled with fear. See what they said? God, why have you done this? Take us back to Egypt. Take us back to slavery. It wasn't that bad back there. We didn't really mind slavery that much. We actually said back then to leave us alone so we may serve the Egyptians. This seems, you know, if you, if you, if you think this, this seems sort of crazy language. They've been freed from slavery, from generations of slavery. God's freed them miraculously, and now they're saying, ah, oh, look, it wasn't that bad. Let's go back there. It seems crazy. They won't go back to their, their old slave masters, to their old cruel master. That's where they want to go to when fear hits. If I think back to my my high school days, I absolutely hated high school. I hated high school. Years 10, 11, and 12 were just the worst. I hated it for a a number of reasons. I was failing most of my subjects at school. I didn't put the work in, didn't get the necessary support. I had a number of bad relationships uh, that affected social dynamics, it was, and it was a rough school, and around that time, I'd just sort of come to know Jesus, and I was one of the only Christians in my whole school. I hated it. And I can remember finishing my uh, last exam ever in year 12, and it was just like this freedom, like this absolute freedom. It was like I was released, finally. I, had to, I could, never, I, I could uh, leave and never go back, never to return, and I was out of there. Now, I, I've left school, um, I'd fin- now, now, sorry, now I'd finished school 20 years ago. I had my 20-year anniversary uh, 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 reunion the other day, didn't go. I'm not going to that thing, right? Not going. But 20 years, wow, it makes me feel very old, but I'm not going. And I didn't go. But here's an insight to my brain, right? Yes, let me leave you in on this. I, this is crazy. I still have dreams, almost like once a week, of being back at high school. I'm haunted. Thank you for someone saying, oh, I like that. Thank you for feeling my pain that I feel most nights. Um, um, But I have dreams that I'm back there uh, once a week at least. And in my dreams, it's so weird. I know that I've finished, but I'm questioning why I'm back here again. Like I've gone back to this place I do not want to be. And I can feel the stress again of being back in high school. 
And I'm thinking, well, I hated it so much the first time. Why have I come back to study here again? Why have I returned? And I wake up all stressed and sweaty and then realize, ah, oh, it's just a dream. And I feel so much better. My wife, Katie, thinks I should go and see a psychologist about this. But I think they make for good illustrations, so I'm going to stick with my dreams, right? It's fine, right? You can enjoy those, my craziness. But it's funny, this pressure comes on for Israel, and they forget what God has done for them, and they want to run back to a place where it was horrible. They want to go back to where they, where they were under in slavery. They've been freed from their slave master, and they want to go back because they've forgotten how horrible it is. In sentence 12, they said this, is, not, uh, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Uh, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Well, the answer is no, they didn't say that. If you go back and read what they said, this is what they actually said from Exodus 4.31. And when they, the Israelites, had heard the Lord was concerned about them and seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. It's very different to what they're saying they said. The memory of slavery has totally changed. They've forgotten how bad it was and, and that they were under a slave master. And he wants them back. Pharaoh wants them back to enslave them once again. God has redeemed and miraculously rescued them and shown who he is and his love for them. But they are under pressure. They want to go back to what they know, which is slavery, even though it would lead to their death and destruction. And we can sit here and read this and think, how stupid are they? How stupid are they? These free Israelites wanting to go back into slavery. But as we've been saying, God miraculously rescuing His people by this Passover lamb this, out of this slavery is a paradigm for how He rescues us from sin and death through the true Passover lamb, Jesus. And we too then, through Christ, have been rescued from sin and death and the slavery that that brings and I wonder, as we read this, I wonder if we read ourselves and think, as freed people, how often do we run back to our old slave master sin? How often do we run back to what we know and what makes us feel good for a moment, but then harms us? How often do we keep sin's number just in case? When we feel flat or feel down. How often we feel uneasy, a little bit off, or we get tired of fighting, we go back to our old vices, our old destructive habits, to our old slave master, just to, just to feel better for a moment. But often it makes us feel worse and go deeper down in the hole. And just like Pharaoh, our, our, our old slave master, sin, calls, cries out to us, I want you back, you need me, you want me. You forget how bad, and we forget how bad sin was, and we forget how much God loves us and His plan is good for us. And we often run back to, to sin, which is slavery. We forget we've been freed by the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus, to be the people of God, to be redeemed, to be set free, and to live as God has called us to live, having purpose and meaning and hope. And we need to live at our freedom and not go back. But I want to get real practical here because I, I want to say that sin and pursue, the pursuit of it is destructive. And if we hold on to it, it will destroy us. And if you know there is sin in your life that you run to as a comfort and a vice, then I want to encourage you to cut it off. Don't keep sin's number for the just-in-case moments. Sin is slavery, and you've been set free. 
So let me get real practical here. If you, if you struggle with pornography, if you're a guy or a girl, I want to encourage you to do anything you can to get rid of this out of your life. It is destructive. That might mean getting rid of smartphones, computers, whatever the device is, to fight this. If you struggle with insecurities, comparisons, jealousy, I want to encourage you to consider getting rid of your social media accounts. If you're in a relationship you know you shouldn't be in, that is causing you to run away from Jesus rather than running to Him, I want to encourage you to think about doing something. If it is greed, money being your security, seeking the approval of others, fear of man, finding your worth in your career or being a parent, whatever it is, I want to encourage you to take action. You may be sitting there thinking, whoa, Gav's going to be crazy this afternoon. Like he's going to be serious on me. But doesn't Jesus say this? He says, if you, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, to pluck it out. If your arm causes your sin or your hand, he says, cut it off. And he says, because it's better to enter glory with one arm or one eye than to enter both with, into hell. This is a strong warning. And Jesus is not playing here. He knows that sin is destructive and it will master you if you play with it. And he knows that sin does not care about you or love you, but the God of deliverance does, and he has set you free from these things by the blood of his Son. He encourages us to run to him and not back to our old slave master who calls out because God has delivered us from slavery, just like the Israelites. And what I find interesting as I keep reading this, we keep reading this story is God's response to Israel's cry to we should go back to slavery. If it was me, if someone, I'd freed someone from slavery, which I haven't and I probably won't, but if, if I did and they were saying, can I go back? I'd be angry and hurt. Ungrateful. After all I've done for you. And I'd say, fine, go back to Pharaoh. See how it works out for you. Being the angry jock that I was. But anyway... <laughs> Have a look what God does, though. He doesn't do this. Have a look what He does. 15. uh, 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 Yeah, verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, Moses, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel might go go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of of the Egyptians so that they shall see, so they shall go in after them. And I will get the glory of a Pharaoh and all the hosts and his chariots and all the horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord when I've gotten the glory of a Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. I feel like God is hearing the cries and going, what's the problem? What's the big deal? There's no issue here. I got this. Just go forward. It's easy. Go forward. Moses, get your staff. Go through the sea. Part it. Let's move forward. I will defeat the army. Don't stress. I've got this sorted. And we read in Sentence 21 to 25, this is exactly what happens. 21 uh, uh, sentence says, um, the Lord drove back the sea. God does it. And he delivers Israel right through the sea, parts of this place of chaos. God brings order and then has control over it. And they walk through on the dry ground with water on both sides, water, uh, walls of water. God's showing his power. There's no mistake that God is the one doing this. He is delivering them. The Egyptians see this parting of the sea and chase the Israelites in and again, just as God said. Then he throws the Egyptians into chaos in Sentences 24 and 25. And in a panic, their chariot wheels get clogged and they're in trouble. And at the end of Sentence 25, they say this, Let us flee from before Israel. Why? For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. 
Egyptians see who God is now, and they see that He is the one at work, and He is the one who is the Lord over all things. And finally, the final blow is landed. Sentence 26 to 29, God tells Moses to stretch out His hand again, so that all the waters come flooding back into the Egyptians, and Pharaoh and the Egyptians are finally defeated. What happens to Israel? They walk through on dry land. And we see God alone is the one at work. He's the one who is delivering his people, just as he said, and and Israel escape. And they've done nothing. They They haven't worked their way through this. They've had to fight. They've just had to trust God and be still and follow. And Moses sums up this perfectly in sentences 13 and 14 of chapter 14. says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you shall never see again. And I love this part. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be uh, be silent. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. God is saying, watch, be still. I got this. Just watch, be still. Psalm 46.10 says, which I love, be still and know that I'm God. And in the Hebrew, this idea of being still is God saying, stop talking, just almost shut up and watch. Watch me. I have three kids, Jet, Indy, Sav. And Jet, my son, is about to turn 10. He's my oldest child. He's about to turn 10, double digits, growing up fast. A big thing I try to always think about parenting is uh, I, I try to I enjoy the past, but I don't want to keep saying, you know, um, I remember they were little and how cute they were and whatever and get caught up in reminiscing too much because uh, I try to enjoy each stage that my kids are at, each season of life that they're in, not wishing they were older or younger, but just enjoying the moments that I have with them at each phase of life. Because I think if I, if, I, if I think too much of the past and get so caught up in that, I miss what's in front of me, not engaging with them. But, but to be honest, one phase of life I do not miss is the baby phase. I'm not a baby guy. It's not my thing. Especially changing nappies. I do not miss that. I'm so thankful when we finally got rid of the last bunch of nappies and wipes. I um, wasn't for that. I remember when my, my kids first were born and um, learning how to change nappies and learning that when they were on just, just milk, their, their, their poo didn't smell that bad at all. Once I went on solids, wow, it was a whole new world of yuck. Um, and being a bit of a germaphobe that I am, I hated changing nappies and getting anything on my hands and then changing my son and then watching out if he just sort of weed on you and he was uncovered, he was ducking and weaving as you changed the nappies. It was a whole new thing to learn. But when you change a baby's nappy, some tip for you, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, when you change a baby's nappy, they need to lay still, as still as they can. When you try and change a nappy and they're squirming all over the place, it is not healthy to hold the legs still and undo it all. It's not easy. And it's near impossible. They need to realize, babies need to realize that they are helpless and they need help. And they actually need to lay still and just be still whilst you change their nappy, right? What a good illustration is this, right? Yeah, thank you very much, Cam Crew. Thank you very much. I thought of this all by myself, anyway. <laughs> but babies are helpless and they need help. That's what they need. To, they need to realize they need help and just to be still. And I think this is similar for, for Israel and for us. We need to realize that we are helpless. Israel are helpless. They, they need to be still and not run or not fight or not fear, but to watch what God is going to do. They could not save themselves. They need to get this 
and be still before God. They can contribute nothing to their deliverance from slavery. I think this, this idea, we, we see this again and again in the Bible, that we can contribute nothing to our deliverance from our slavery to sin and death. It's all God. God acted. He sent His Son, Jesus, to come and do what we could never do because we were helpless. We were lost. The Bible talks that we were dead in our sin. And dead people can't do anything. And Jesus came and died in our place for, uh, for our sin and delivered us from slavery and into an eternal relationship with our Creator God. And God has done this by His grace. Because of His great love. And we are called to be still and silent and watch and rejoice in our God who has delivered us. But as I was saying before, being still can be hard. God was calling Israel to be still when the mighty, act, when the mighty army of Egypt was coming towards them. I'm sure as they were standing there watching this Egyptian army roll towards me, chariots and horses, every instinct in them would have been to fight or to flee. Are we going to fight or are we going to leg it the other way? Because we're going to do something because they're coming at us. I don't know about you, but when, when, the, when hard times come and when things look there against me, my instinct is to fight. I want to figure things out. I want to find a solution. When problems arise, when I'm confronted by my own weakness, I want to fight in my own strength to figure out solutions, to solve it in my own wisdom. I want to control. I want answers now. And I wonder if you're either a fighter or a fleer. Well, maybe you run and put your head in the sand and think, I can't do this, it's all too much. And we give up. But God calls us to be still. And to what? To know that he'll fight for us. But what does being still mean? Well, you know what? Being still doesn't mean you abdicate responsibility and do nothing. It means you take responsibility for what is yours and then leave the rest to God. I think our problem is often we take responsibility for what is not our responsibility. Like, I'm responsible for my sin, but I'm not responsible for achieving my forgiveness. I leave that to God and be still. I'm responsible for being a good parent, but I'm not responsible for the choices of my children. I leave it to God and be still. I'm responsible for being a good employee, but I'm not responsible for my boss's actions. I leave it to God and be still. I'm responsible for telling others about Jesus, but I'm not responsible for making them be a follower of Jesus. I leave it to God and be still. So when we try and control and take responsibility for what is not ours, we're saying to God, God, I know better than you, and I can do your job better than you can. And the result is we feel overwhelmed and we feel stressed because we have no power over what we're trying to control. And it turns out we aren't very good at being God. When we realize this, we run back to God who graciously says, I will fight for you, you just have to be still. It's God who delivers us by His grace. And we can rest in that and we can rejoice in that. Final chapter we're going to look at is chapter 15. I wish I had more time to sit in this chapter. I was reading this this morning. Uh, I love what I was reading here. And it's, I want to look at this idea of being delivered to worship. 
in chapter 15, Moses responds to the events that's happened, and he writes this chapter of praising God in light of everything. Chapters, sentences 1 to 5, you can read this later on, but sentences 1 to 5 are all about who God is, describing Him and calling Him to a call, a call to praise Him for who He is and what He has done. And sentence 3 says, the Lord is a man of war. Another translation says, the Lord is a warrior, and I will praise Him to sentence 2. You know, throughout this song and throughout the, these chapters, there's this emphasis on chariots and horses of the Egyptians and this might and power of the Egyptian army. But they are no match for the Lord who is the warrior. He is the warrior and praise Him. Sentence, 15, uh, sentence 5, sorry, the floods and deep waters and the Red Sea that covered and defeated the Egyptians are from God's hand. Because sentence 2, he is the, he is, the Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation, and this is my God, and I will praise him. From sentence 6, the language turns to more personal. It's directed to God. It says, uh, your, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy in the greatness of your majesty. You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. The blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. It's a praise of God being personal, of his powerful intervention of His work. And the conclusion is clear, sentence 11 and 13. It says this then, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Sentence 13, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. This is the God, the same God we worship today, who delivers of His unfailing love, who leads His redeemed people who guides His redeemed people, and who is forever near His redeemed people. And He says that He will lead them home to where they belong. This is our God. This is the God who is worthy of worship. This is the God who is worthy of all praise. This is who He is, the same God we worship today. I love the book of Psalms. Psalm 77 is a, it's a bit of a heavier psalm. And in Psalm 77, it's this, the writer recalling of God's deliverance, of this moment, of the Red Sea moment. Thousands of years on, they're still recalling this moment of rescue. And the psalmist begins by describing their immense personal pain they're going through. And they, they lead then to this great uh, crisis of confidence in God in the first nine sentences. But then in sentences 10 and to 12, the psalmist makes a determined decision and sentence 11 nails it. It says this, And I will remember the deeds of the Lord. In the midst of their crisis and despair, they make a decision not to listen how they're feeling, not to look at their circumstances, but to remember and to think on the deeds of the Lord and His deliverance and what He has done. And it's this past event that is a sign for the psalmist and gives them confidence in God's shepherding, God's care and God's love, and that He is near them here and now. It's the objective reality of God's salvation that gives them confidence to face their present struggles. I want to say how much more us who have seen God's ultimate act of love and rescue in Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross gives us every reason to praise in every season. The cross is the objective demonstration in history that God is for us, that He will not leave us, and He loves us so much, no matter how we're feeling or what circumstance we're in. 
whatever our circumstances we're in, we can sing of the goodness of God, for our God has delivered us, and we can praise Him. Let me pray. Our great God, we want to thank You that You are a God who delivers that you have rescued us from sin and from slavery, just like the story of the Red Sea, of the Exodus, that you delivered your people and you call us to be still and to watch and to see your mighty hand, your mighty salvation at work. You call us in Psalm 46.10 to tell us to be still and know that you are God. Lord, we want to ask for our souls that we would do that, that we'd stop trying to fight in our own strength, the worries that consume us, the busyness of our minds, that we would be still. Lord, in, in Matthew 11, you say that, uh, come to me all who are weary, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Lord, we want to be yoked with you and walk your pace. We want to thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior. And we want to look back on that, that moment in history, that objective moment in history and realize what it means for us now that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you have set us free from sin and from slavery. And then our best is yet to come in glory, and you are going to bring us home one day. But right now, in the midst of this, we're going to pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would be in us, pointing us more to you and living, helping us to live a life of love and mercy and justice in light of what you have done, our great God. So, Lord, now we want to pray that we be people who live as freed people, not running back to our old slave sin master. We would live lives of praise and worship in light of what you have done. So, Lord, as we, as we gather here now, as we're about to stand and sing together, we would sing praises to you or for who you are. Stir our affections now for you as we gather as your people. Thank you so much for all you have done. We pray it all in King Jesus' name. Amen. We take time.